What's up, Chicago? I'm Sarah Stark, in for Aaron Allen, and this is The Rundown. We hear a lot that representation matters. Authentic representation on stages and screens and in exhibits kind of depends on having a diverse group of artists behind the scenes. But the arts present all kinds of barriers to entry for anyone who isn't white and wealthy. That's what Enriched Chicago is trying to change. They were really provoked by a study that showed that the majority of executive and senior leaders in arts organizations were people who identified as white. That's Nina Sanchez, the director of Enriched Chicago. They partner with organizations around the city to change the racist systems in the arts. Their member institutions include the Lyric Opera, Hubbard Street Dance, and the Hyde Park Arts Center. Now, those are the kinds of places that could really make an impact if they change the way they do things. After the murder of George Floyd in 2020, tons of arts organizations put out racial equity statements. Nina and her colleagues wanted to understand if those statements actually led to meaningful change. So they surveyed employees at the companies they partner with. Aaron sat down with Nina to talk about the survey results and the path ahead. They started by talking about what some of those public statements actually said. A lot of it um, boiled down to statements issued online through their web platforms that committed to um, supporting and investing in uh, specifically Black communities in Chicago. And that is through greater partnerships, greater access to the resources of their institutions, and within their institutions, greater opportunity to advance um, in leadership positions. Mm. And um, the arts weren't alone in doing that. But I do think that one thing that distinguishes the arts in Chicago from a lot of other sectors in Chicago and beyond is that this discussion about racial equity, um, even to a certain extent, anti-racism and anti-oppression has been ongoing. Mm. You recently released the findings of Enrich Chicago's first racial equity report. Uh, What were you looking at? What were you trying to find? And who were you asking um, when you were trying to look at that? Yes. Yeah, so the, the racial equity impact report that we, we just published um, was percolating as an idea for three years. We're literally the summer of 2020 as we're having these uprisings for racial justice um, mm. on the heels of racist violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted to consider how do we know that we're doing what we said we would do. And the case of the membership of Enriched Chicago's um, cohort program or collective action circle, some of those institutions have been working with us since the beginning, mm-hmm. which at that point would have been about seven years. Uh, and also, how do we hold this work and understand this work and talk about it and where we're successful or not in the scheme of a process that we know um, is a generational project? Mm. Right. And and that is to say that this work precedes us mm-hmm. and it will um, continue on <laughs> once we're gone. Mm-hmm. Right. Once we're gone from our roles, once we're gone from these institutions, once we are gone from this earth. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so how do we understand and put words on that? And how can we do that in a way that cuts to the chase, which is what are the people who stand to benefit from this most? Those who have been historically excluded and marginalized what are they saying? Mm. Right? What is their experience? And in that way, uh, we can also remain accountable to the community. We must be accountable to if we're, if we're serious about moving forward institutional transformation. Yeah. Uh, 
wow, thank you. That That's, I mean, important, important work. So glad you did the study. <laughs> um, the big headline from that report was that the public statements made by so many organizations in support of racial equity after June 2020 did not lead to intentional actions for the most part. Um, tell me what that means. I think that what what that finding means that this this perception and this experience that people made statements, but that nothing actually happened, um, points to a limited amount of access that impacted communities have to the work that's actually taking place, right? To the extent that organizations are doing this work, um, it's not being felt and it's not being communicated to the people who are most impacted by systemic inequity. And so, um, right, the the response, don't just um, talk about it, do something about it, um, points to that, right? There's, mm-hmm. we have this, the statement, we maybe have put forward a vision for what it would look like for us to be an organization that is addressing racism within it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't necessarily have a plan for how we do that is the greatest learning from this. You know, um, just by virtue of joining Enrich Chicago, it sounds like um, these organizations are already at least outwardly demonstrating that they are wanting to make this commitment. And then they make these statements. Um, and then, again, not not 100 percent of the respondents said that that then that nothing happened. But the majority of respondents um, said that nothing happened um, in the aftermath. Um, what do you make of that? I mean, th- does it surprise you that these organizations didn't didn't follow through, um, especially given the fact that they're members of Enrich Chicago? Or was it kind of just like, yeah, that's that's the way it goes? No, I wasn't surprised. And actually, I think that a, a, a survey is one way that we understand uh we get some some new information, but anecdotally, experientially, this was a lot what we knew to be true, mm. right? We, we, it's in many ways we didn't need a survey to tell us this, yeah. right? So I wasn't surprised, but and I also know that it's it's not necessarily that they aren't doing anything. I think what we're called to do is understand how do we do more and how do we become more transparent about it, because if if we're being um, governed by a fear of failure. Right. If we're being governed by this mindset that we don't have enough resources to make these changes that we need to make, or we don't have enough power to make the changes that we need to make, then uh, let's be reminded that none of that is true. Mm. Let's just embrace the reality that this is a commitment to failure, mm. right? Because we're we're not going to get it right every single time. Mm. We're not going to solve this problem on our own, and we're not going to solve it yesterday. But we do have an opportunity to try it and try it again. Can you this wasn't this was kind of the the headline, as I I mentioned, but there were some other things that that um, other findings. I think you kind of had a list. Can you just summarize briefly what were the other things that uh, you found when you um, after after analyzing the survey responses? So, yes, I'm happy to, to recap a little bit those four main findings that we we took from from the survey data. Uh, one, it's that those statements didn't intentionally, didn't uh, lead to intentional action. Two, this perception that those racial equity workshops that people participate in, that's one of the things our members commit to. Mm-hmm. The impact of those trainings seems to be most effective on 
staff members who uh, were not in senior leadership or executive leadership roles. And that might have something to do with the access that some of our respondents have to professionals who are doing the work in their organizations. So where, where some might have wondered, did they even do this workshop, right? <laughs> um, or what are they doing with this knowledge? Mm. Um, right, that, that was less visible for people in senior leadership and executive leadership roles than it was for people who are managing um, individuals on the front line of the work. Um, the third finding was that there is an impact of these statements and, and institutional change efforts on individuals based on the whole of their identities. As we know, we're more than just our race. Um, and, and how do we understand what the experience of a, an Asian American cisgender uh, female might be like um, compared to that of uh, a black identified person who also is LGBTQIA plus, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I was very happy that we could get at some of the nuance of, of, that, of this work on people from, right, that it touched on the whole breadth of their identities. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, um, right, this idea and understanding that the impact of racial equity efforts on BIPOC communities is not always visible to staff from those communities. Um, We need to be more forthcoming and proactive in our communication about what our goals are, what did we say we were going to do, what did we actually do, and then what comes next. One of the recommendations, I'm just going to quote the uh, report, BIPOC staff must be compensated for their lived experiences when those experiences benefit the organization, work that so often surpasses stated job duties and responsibilities. Racial capitalism is unfortunately alive and well in the arts and culture sector. First of all, what is racial capitalism? Uh Oh, gosh, how much time do we have? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) At at its core, racial capitalism is this idea that uh, people of differing racial groups are expected to to produce and engage in the labor system in specific kind of ways tied to their racial identity. Mm. And so that create structures that support the participation in the workforce based on racial identity so that um, people who uh, are raised to be white are more more often in these like management and executive level roles and people who are uh, raised to be people of color or BIPOC are more often to be found in in low paying workplace opportunities and have limited advancement in workplace settings. Okay, so that's that's racial capitalism at its core. In the context of this case making um, that the report is doing here, uh, talk about why BIPOC staff should be compensated when they are sharing their lived experiences and doing work based on their lived experiences um, at the organization. Our organizations typically um, form some kind of working group. Um, or leadership entity to steward racial equity initiatives in their organization. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, that is work that these employees are taking on, taking on in addition to their core functions that for which they receive a salary, right? And so, at the base level, um, people should be incentivized and compensated for their participation there, mm-hmm. right? I think any staff member, but especially BIPOC staff members, because we can't do this work without partnering with our BIPOC um, colleagues. 
So that's at a base level where we're talking about having some level of compensation. Mm -hmm. I think another place that we need to to think um, long and hard about this is when we know that the community relationships and resources and understandings that people bring to their job is essential to being able to um, fulfill that job successfully and that it is uh, enables them to do that in ways that other people who aren't part of that community can do, right? Mm. So if you have a community outreach role, right? And the community outreach is to a Latina community and you end up hiring somebody from that community and guess what? They also speak Spanish, right? I would hope that you're paying them a salary that acknowledges the skill set that they have which is relationship building in this specific community and communicating with the people of that community, right? Which someone else won't have. So mm-hmm. that that's like a, a, a easy example that I would raise as how we might think uh, more critically about the ways that we compensate people. Yeah. Thank you for breaking that down. I wonder if you can get into some of the other recommendations. Yeah. So the first is that uh, we need to, our, our institutions need to be more public facing with their, not just their racial equity statements, but their plans. Um, the second is that our um, partnering organizations should regularly assess the work that they're doing and share those results. That can be within uh, the membership of the cohort or collective action space um, and, and or also with the public. And in this way, increase the accountability um, and shared learning that they have. Um, The third thing is that executive leadership should be um, at the forefront of the efforts within these institutions to advance racial equity. Mm. So they're they're culture bearers. Um, What they say and and more importantly, what they do matters. And this requires that um, they are regularly interacting with the work of racial equity and the people who are making the plans, stewarding the plans and building a community of support for the work across the organization. In a dream world, if all these changes got implemented, how would it change things for folks working in the arts? I think for um, for people in the arts, um, I think we all stand to benefit from this work, whether you are someone who identifies as a white person or a person of color amongst our other identities. We all stand to benefit from this because Ultimately, what we're trying to do is find um, a new way to be and do work together in our organizations. Mm. How do we change a culture uh, within institutions, which is about work, 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 that is very neck up, that is very much about what you can produce that actually um, can evolve to become uh, and make space for who are you, the human being, who also loves arts, does works in the arts and is an artist. Yeah. Right. For BIPOC people in particular, my hope is that these institutions become less places we have to survive. Right. And then become places where we can really thrive, right. Where we can actually increasingly bring ourselves to our workplace with all of our experiences without having to explain ourselves every single time. Yeah. Sounds like a dream. (laughs) (laughs) Um, what about for audiences, people who are consuming the the art and the media that these organizations and these people working in the, in the arts make? What 
what, how would that, that change it for them? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that question. I think that that's a really important question to, to ask, which is how does, how do our audiences benefit? And I think that this is critically important right now, because as in other times, not in Illinois, thankfully, not in Chicago, thankfully, but we are seeing in the national um, landscape, this increased book banning, this increased sort of censorship, this uh, increased focus in some places to erase stories and people from our history. Mm. An earlier study that we did actually showed that the more racially diverse an arts and culture institution is, the more likely we are to see diverse stories on their stages, in their galleries, um, and across these institutions. And I think that that, that, is, that is really important to, to hold on to because in a city like Chicago, that is by design meant to keep us apart across racialized groups, across class communities, the arts continue to be one of the few places where we can have these experiences. Nina Sanchez is the director of Enrich Chicago. To learn more about the organization and their racial equity impact report, head to enrichchi, that's enrichchi.org. And that's it for today. Justin Bull and I produce The Rundown, and Ariel Van Cleve edits the show. Our theme music is by Louis Weeks. The Rundown is produced by WBEZ Chicago and is part of the NPR Network. And if you love the show, please rate and review us. It helps more people find The Rundown. I'm Sarah Stark. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.